The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. But today, can you imagine this crowd on this hillside? Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth, who has descended, is, is saying to them, I'm gonna teach you how to pray to my Father and your Father. Here's what this looks like. And it's this beautiful thing because here's the Son of God praying and you might think, man, he's gonna use words I can't use. He's gonna say things I would never know how to say. It's gonna be this real fancy ordeal. But that's not the case. See, the Pharisees that he's already rebuked, they prayed in an, authentic, or an inauthentic way for everyone to see them. And the Gentiles, the pagans, they prayed in sort of a superstitious way with many words. And he's really just gonna call people to a simple, authentic, sincere prayer with intentions and affections directed toward God. It's not just a model of what sort of prayers we ought to pray, but really what he's gonna reveal is a model for the life that we ought to live together. And I, I think if, if we are the sort of people empowered by the Spirit who not only pray this sort of prayer but live this sort of life in Christ with wholehearted devotion and whole life discipleship, the world will see what it looks like to be God's people on mission and surrender to Him. And the, the prayer starts this way. He says, our Father in heaven. And let's just read the prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts or our sins or our trespasses as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. He starts with our Father. Our Father, we talked about this last week, that Jesus is telling us, his people, this people listening to him and us, the church, we get to call God our Father. 17 times in the sermon, this is how he describes God as Father he says, our Father in heaven, and Ryan alluded to our core values, surrender, community, and mission, and I think just right off the bat, you see two of them, our Father, community, and in heaven, surrender. He says, our Father, and he never says, pray, my Father, but over and over, our Father in heaven, Give us this day, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And what Jesus is teaching this people, even in the first line of the prayer, is that Christianity is a communal faith. Stanley Harawas says it this way, Christianity is inherently communal, a matter of life in the body of the church. Jesus did not call isolated individuals to follow him. He called a group of disciples. You can kind of get this idea, it's just me and Jesus and I don't need anybody else. Well, yes, we are saved by Christ and Christ alone, but we are not saved to be alone. We are saved into the people of God. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. He says, you once were not a people, but now you're the people of God. He's our Father. 
And so Christ died to bring us to God, but to bring us together. And so we pray, our Father in heaven, he is above us, he is over us. We are on earth, he is in heaven. We surrender to him. He is God and we are not. He says, our Father in heaven. And then he says, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Well, if you were to ask, what's the Lord's prayer summed up in a sentence? I think this is it. Hallowed be your name. I think all the other prayers bring about this. Your kingdom come. God's name is honored when his kingdom comes. His his name is honored when his will is done. His name is honored when he gives us daily bread and he's seen as provider. We get grace and he gets glory. His name is honored when we forgive like we have been forgiven. His name is honored when we turn from temptation and when he delivers us from evil. All these first three prayers, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, one author says are nuanced versions of the same request. They might best be summed up as as a desire of God's honorific reign to become a full reality, that God would be honored not just in our prayers but in all of life. And the reality is hallowed be your name. That's why we're on earth. The chief end of man or the chief end of humanity is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We were put on the planet to make much of Jesus Christ, to worship him, to magnify him, and to enjoy him forever. And when our deepest joy is in his presence, it magnifies him all the more. And as we magnify him, we help others come into his presence People ask the question of pastors often, but people ask the question all over culture. Desperate to know, what's my purpose in life? There are books, there are podcasts, there are webinars, there are courses you can buy. I can save you lots of time and money. I'm just looking for my purpose in life. Your purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now we might all have different passions and we might have different gifts, And God uses us in different ways in culture and in the church. And at the same time, our purpose is to glorify Jesus. It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's everyone's purpose. The problem is we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we need the salvation that comes in Jesus. He says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This prayer for his kingdom to come is a prayer It's a prayer of labor. That means there's work for us to do in Christ. It's also a prayer of lampposts that our lives shine Reminding people of something that is not yet. Well, what does it mean that the kingdom has come? Theologians argue about this, and they've been arguing about it for centuries. I think there's an already and there's a not yet to it that I think is one of the best ways to describe it. There's an already, Mark 1.14, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. See, The inbreaking of the kingdom came when Jesus Christ came and lived and died and rose from the dead. But the world is profoundly broken, so the kingdom is not fully consummated yet. One day it will come fully. And until then, we labor 
For Christ to be magnified, we labor for wrongs to be made right in the world. We labor for Jesus to be known and adored. We labor for things that have been broken to be put back together. And as we do, our lives are like lampposts. Maybe like the lamppost in Narnia. There's this lamppost shining. This will show you the way home. That's what our lives are meant to be, empowered by the Spirit in Christ. See, the coming of the kingdom, the hallowing of God's name, the doing of God's will on earth as it is in heaven. John, John Pennington says, they're all one prayer. They look at the end goal of human history. Each refers to the fitting culmination of God's saving work on earth as it is in heaven. And this, this prayer for your kingdom to come, you could just say it in sort of a rote way that thinks, yes, one day we'll be in heaven and that'll be great. But if you stop and think about why we might ask that. Some of you have children with afflictions, either mental or physical. Some of you just struggle in relationships. Some of you are wrecked with anxiety that you can't control. Some of you uh, lost your husband or your wife this year. Some of you lost brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and children and grandchildren who died in Christ. And so when we pray your kingdom come, we are praying that everything broken will be made right and death itself will be no more. Your kingdom come. And as we pray for it to come, we labor as lampposts to it. We labor with our lives to show people what it looks like to lay our lives down. Your kingdom come and your will be done. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, we might say, that's a tough one to pray. I want my will. I really want my will to be done. But I think there's something later in the prayer that would remind us we really don't want that. But I think also... When Jesus is saying, you pray to the Father, your will be done, he's gonna pray that about a year and a half later. He's gonna be in a garden, and his disciples are gonna be sleeping. He's been betrayed by one of his friends, and listen, there are already people on their way. They're coming with clubs and swords. They're gonna beat him, they're gonna mock him, they're gonna crucify him. And he says, God, Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, let it be. Not my will, but your will be done. See, the prayer for God's will to be done is a prayer for us to die to ourselves like Jesus died for us. God, I lay down my will, I lay down my rights. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And God, I'm willing to lay myself down for that to happen on earth as it is in heaven. When I was thinking about how to describe this, I really love something that my son Nate said, and I, I actually didn't know he said it. And Dave Tate texted me and Laura last Sunday and said, hey, y'all may have read this, but I loved what Nate shared. Dave had some seniors share with incoming freshmen. Here's my favorite verse, and, and here's why. Here's maybe how this could impact your time in high school. And so Nate shared his favorite verse. I didn't know it was his favorite verse, 
being the engaged dad that I am. It's Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Well, I knew Nate had said he really loved it when I, I shared this verse at my daughter's wedding and, and the Lord impacted Nate through that, but Nate saw something even far beyond. I love the way he describes this. And what I said at my daughter's wedding to her and her husband is, is that one day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord like the waters cover the sea. But right now, if you live life in Christ together, that part of earth, wherever you are, can be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And so Nate just kind of took that and ran with it. And here's what he said last week. He said, Habakkuk 2.14 is not a nebulous prayer that the Israelites recited to please God, but it was pointing to the weight of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection and the fact that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of him. He said, I love the imagery of waters covering up the sea because waters don't just cover the surface. They fill its depths. Waters are the sea. You can't separate water from the Atlantic. The Atlantic Ocean is the water. And we won't be able to separate the earth from the understanding of the weight and goodness of who God is. So we labor toward his kingdom coming and his will being done until the day that it happens and one day it's gonna happen. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord like the waters cover the sea. And God invites us as we pray to join in what he's doing to bring this about. So Jesus says, pray that your kingdom would become and your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So there are these first three requests. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And there are prayers that are aimed at God and then there are prayers that are aimed at life and humanity. And so he says next, give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. It's a prayer that trusts Jesus to meet our needs. Well, what is he doing when he tells these people to pray, give us this day our daily bread? I think there are three things that he's doing. And the first thing I think relates to the people that they are. I think he's telling them, you are the Exodus people. You might remember the story of Exodus. God's people are slaves in Egypt for 430 years. A new Pharaoh arises and he's worse than even all the others and he brings hardship upon hardship upon God's people. And they cry out to God and God sends a deliverer named Moses. And Moses comes to Egypt scared as a deliverer, but he comes nonetheless and he says to Pharaoh, that God says, let my people go that they may worship me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh refuses, God hardens his heart as he refuses and he says, no, I won't do it. And so God then brings these plagues on Egypt, the last being the death of the firstborn of every Egyptian family. And then Israel begins their journey of exodus. It begins their journey of escape. And God does this incredible miracle of opening up the waters of the Red Sea and Israel crosses on dry land and then the Egyptian army is swallowed up. They're rescued from 430 years of slavery and right about 43 days later, they're complaining. 
God, what in the world have you done? Moses, what have you done to us? We had it better in Egypt. We want to go back. We're running out of food. We're going to starve here in this desert. We wish that we were slaves again. And in Exodus 16, 4, God speaks to Moses and he says this. He says, I'm about to rain bread from heaven. And he sends them manna every morning. And not just bread, meat as well. He sends them quail in the evening. And in Exodus 16, 6 and 7, he says this, at evening you shall know it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. Give us this day our daily bread. Remember God provides for you in ways that you simply cannot and know in the evening that he is the Lord and wake up in the morning and see his glory. Give us this day our daily bread is a prayer that trusts him. But goodness, isn't that a foreign concept? Give us this day our daily bread. I mean, we've got it, right? It's in the pantry or maybe it's in that little box. Growing up, we had the little box that says bread is a staff of life you could roll up. And back then, where I grew up, we didn't know that you were supposed to eat wheat bread because it was healthy. All we knew was there was white bread, Wonder Bread. But it was always there. Every time I opened that box, it was always there. Maybe if you run out, you got an extra freezer. You got more bread in there. But if you run out of there, you just go to H-E-B and get it. So how do, what do you do? Well, give us this day, our daily, how do we pray that? Well, listen, the the reality is you couldn't get up from wherever you're sitting to go spread whatever you're gonna spread on that bread if not for Jesus Christ. He sustains all things by his powerful word. Maybe you're gonna get up and go put your little butter on your bread. Maybe you want some peach jalapeno jam. Well, peaches wouldn't exist and neither would those little peppers if it wasn't for God. And your feet wouldn't move without his sustaining power. He puts breath in our lungs. He makes our hearts to beat. And we need him every day. See, sometimes I think we live with too many options instead of living like Elijah. Like the prophets of Baal, we dance and cry out and we get frustrated when things are not working how we want them to. And Elijah just takes the water and dumps it on the bull and dumps it on the wood and says, God, you are all I got every day. Give us this day our daily bread. And then the, the third thing is this. I just think he's the bread. He's, he's gonna say to, to a crowd about this size a little bit later, I'm, I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. You eat of me, you'll never be hungry again. I'm the bread of life. And they, they don't know what he's talking about. They go, is, is he talking about cannibalism? Does he want us to eat his body? No, that's not what he's talking about. He's saying, my body is going to be broken for you. My blood's gonna be poured out for you and I will satisfy the deepest need you have of forgiveness. I will conquer death. You eat of me. You taste of me. You take me in. I will be your Lord. I'll be your savior. I'll be your king. And I will satisfy in a way that nothing else can 
So when he says, give us this day our daily bread, he is gonna be the daily bread that sustains us. It's not just the bread that saves, he's the bread that sustains. It's a prayer that trusts him to meet our needs. Give us this day our daily bread. And then it's a prayer of forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. My goodness, that's a hard thing to pray. It's a hard thing to pray because, man, Chase, do you know, you know what people have done to me? You know how I've been harmed and you want me to forgive? And the the one who says this, though, is the very one who's gonna be on a cross and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. At the end of this prayer, he says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others of their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I think Jesus is pressing in again to this reality that is something they can't do on their own. We're gonna need help from the Spirit to transform us into a forgiving people, and he's powerful enough to do just that. God's people are a forgiving people, and it is good. I remember the road I was on driving with my wife in southwest Louisiana, and bitterness towards someone who had hurt me for a long time just kept growing and growing and growing over the years. And I remember just driving in tears, God, I can't do this, I can't do it, I can't forgive, I'm so angry. And I can't explain to you why that day was the day that the Spirit of God worked in me to go, no, you're gonna release this, you're gonna forgive. The the person I was upset at didn't even know I was upset. Wasn't doing a thing to them. But there was a freedom I didn't know that could only come by the Spirit. And I believe that's what Jesus is alluding to. I believe Matthew's readers, after Jesus has died and risen from the dead, understand this is only a work that the Spirit can do because God's people are a forgiving people because we follow Jesus. See, in 1 Corinthians 13, when he says, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a loud loud gong and a clanging cymbal. Well, the sort of love that Jesus has given is this forgiving love. If I'm creedally correct but morally corrupt through unforgiveness, it profits me nothing. Is there someone you need to forgive that you feel like you just can't, you need the Spirit's help? Have you had your sins forgiven by Jesus? Do you wanna cry out to him for forgiveness that's full and free? Is there someone you need to ask forgiveness of? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and then he says, lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. People have been talking for lots and lots of years. What does it mean, lead us not into temptation? See, Jesus, Matthew 4 tells us, was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And the devil's there and tempts him and twists the scripture and Jesus responds rightly with the scripture and worship to the Father 
And he says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I, I really believe lead us not into temptation is don't give us over to our desires. I think it's sort of the same prayer as your will be done, not my will be done. Well, why do I think that? Because James says this. He says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Well, can you imagine? I don't know if you can, but can you imagine if there was ever a society where people were just given over to their own desires? Hard to imagine what that might look like. Where people are just given over, not your will, God, but my will. That might be a difficult place to live. See, the, the problem is, though, that we, we see other people living for their desires and we go, yeah, they should not do that. They should live according to God's will, but you know what, I'll, I'll be okay. God, just give me what I want. I, I'll be all right. Those people, whoever those people are for you, those people, they don't need to live the way they're living, but God, just give me what I want. I, I got this, right? Lead us not into temptation. Oh, God, protect me from my desires. Have you ever really, really wanted something and then you got it and it wasn't what you thought it was? Or maybe you really, really wanted something and you didn't get it and you're so grateful you didn't. N.T. Wright describes this idea and he says, lead us not into temptation. He thinks it's connected to Paul's exhortation in 1 Corinthians 10 where the Israelites didn't trust God and God slew them in the wilderness because of their faithlessness. Well, Wright says, right along with give us this day our daily bread, that Jesus is speaking to this people as the Exodus generation. You're the Exodus generation, therefore trust God to lead you out of your moment of testing, to lead you out of your wilderness without you succumbing to it. Trust him to deliver you from evil. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Well, when we pray, deliver us from evil, what we tend to think is the evil outside of us, but I think our prayer needs to start that we might be delivered from the evil inside of us. And then, yeah, we, we pray to be delivered from the evil outside of us. And then there's a sense in which this prayer is sort of an end times repetition. Your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven, deliver us from evil. God, we long for this day when you deliver us from evil, when your kingdom comes, when your name is hallowed in all the earth, when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. God, deliver us from evil. If I were to just take a moment to say anything to, to husbands and fathers, it might be this, that maybe the most significant thing that you could do as a pattern in your life is each day just to pray for your kids. God, would your name be known in their life? God, would you, would you 
Bring your kingdom in their life, God. Would your will be done in their life, Lord? Would you provide for them and would they know you as provider every day? God, would you, would you make them a forgiving people? Would you forgive their sins and save them, God? Would you protect them from temptation, deliver them from evil? Can you imagine what a blessing that would be to children to have been prayed for, something like that every day? Or, or maybe at night just to grab your wife's hand and it might just literally be the words of this prayer that you pray. God, would you deliver us from evil? God, would your kingdom come in our family? See, I think this prayer is an Exodus sort of prayer because I think it's the sort of prayer that gets to know who God is. Moses, having led the people out of Egypt, he wanted to see God. He said, I want to see your glory. God said, I won't show you my glory. You can't see my glory and live, but I will tell you my name. And the Lord's backside passed by him, and he proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. See, I don't know what your thought of God is, but what I want to tell you is that he's a God that's so merciful and gracious, so slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love that he looks at you and me and says, call me father. I'm going to send my son so you can call me father. It's a sort of prayer that gets to know this God. And here's the reality of this prayer. The Lord's prayer is a model both for the sort of prayers that we ought to pray and the sort of life that magnifies Jesus. A life filled with his spirit, instructed by his word. And I really believe if we pray it with our hearts and minds bent before God, he'll turn us into wholehearted, whole life disciples, a surrendered people on mission. Would you stand and could we pray together? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have debts against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Yours is a kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.